One of the worst questions that I think can be asked in a Bible study is, what does this mean to you? Uh, That's a dangerous road to go down because we are fickle, we are temporal, we are extremely limited in our understanding, and we're, we're highly emotive, which I don't think emotions are a bad thing, but they're not a great mechanism by which you interpret or understand the Word of God. So we will we'll bring all of this into the, and, and when somebody says, what does this mean to you? All of a sudden, the Word of God becomes this uh, little, uh, it's a tool that's used to kind of help you feel a certain way, or it's kind of this, this precious moments tagline that kind of just inspires you. And that's a dangerous road to go on. We have to do the hard work. Of, like what we try to do here is wrestle with what is the, where does this text fit into the whole context of everything that's happening around it then and there? We have to do the hard work of, of getting through our cultural assumptions, our historical assumptions, our worldview of very Western mindset and try to get back to what did this stuff mean then? And it's hard. It's hard work. And and so, yeah, we're always looking for two things. Understand what does this text mean in its original occurrence by the author and the audience that are present? What are they experiencing and learning and understanding? And then we ask the question of significance for us. think about the profound influence of the Bible on the world, the way that it has shaped our culture, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's probably a good idea that you know at least what it says. It's going to be about us taking and reading the Bible. All righty, welcome back to the Take and Read podcast. Here we are, Parker Smith. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? Doing super well. Yeah, we're uh, we've settled into Montana. I got my new little studio set up, uh, and uh, we're getting things figured out. But things are going well. I got my Yee hat on, so it's got to be a good day. Shout out. Good. Uh, I see Yee Yee up here, so it's it's made it to the Great White North. Uh, wow. People are rocking the Yee Yee stickers and hats and shirts, and it's. It's fun to see Yee Yee in its natural habitat. I really like it. I love hearing that. It's so cool when you see people sending me pictures of decals from thousands of miles away. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It would have been cool if we saw one in Uganda. I thought about bringing some stickers just so we could hand them out and then uh, see if we can get it to take off internationally. Do you have many international Yee Yee uh, kind of Yi Nation members? Are they outside of Canada? Uh, Canada is the biggest. We do have, uh, we'll get random orders from like Thailand and Vietnam and Amsterdam and Japan, but it's every once in a while and they have to pay a lot for shipping. So they must be loyal, loyal customers over there if they're paying that much for shipping. And so do you think that's Americans that happen to be in those countries? Or you think like those are native to the country, those are fans that just have kind of picked up? I don't know. We should probably reach out to them and see what the story is. 
Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I'd imagine that there, I'm, I'd imagine Japan would be um, like military guys overseas. Right. I'm assuming it's usually military if it's overseas, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I know Australia is pretty big into country music. And so that's not as crazy. Canada and Australia are big into country music, but I don't think it's as popular in like Europe and definitely not Asia. Huh. Who knew? Uh, so fill me in on what God has been teaching you in this season uh, as you spend time in his word, as you are, yeah, uh, a husband now. And and so leading your home as the spiritual leader, what are what are things the Lord's teaching you from his word or from life? Hmm. I'm trying to think of what I want to kind of hone in on. I've really been in a, um, a season. I don't even know if I want to bring it up on this podcast because it's kind of controversial and can lead to a distraction from the gospel itself. But a lot of these old reformers, guys in the early 1500s that were getting back to the root, the root of uh, grace alone, faith alone, Christ mm-hmm. alone from the Roman Catholic Church. And it's really been fascinating to see how far, how far away from the fundamentals of, of Christ alone and faith alone, mankind really messed up the church in terms of just some of these stories of what was going on in the Roman Catholic church in, you know, the 14th and 15th and 16th century was just really fascinating of you know, with it had having just been Halloween, just hearing about, you know, you know, what is All Saints Day? What is like this Reformation? What did Martin Luther, you hear about Martin Luther nailing something to a door? What happened? And just amidst that time to just kind of keep this brief, um, how the Roman Catholic Church at the time was they they didn't even want people reading their own Bibles. They didn't want Bibles to be in English. It was only to be in Latin, which was a sophisticated holy language, mm-hmm. uh, bigger than the people. Only a priest could read from the word of God. And so, yeah, uh, the word was very exclusive. Only yeah, it was select very exclusive. few could ex- access it. Yeah. Yeah. You had to go to a mass and then you could, you could build up this, uh, like this grace by attending a mass. Um, uh, if you counted certain, if you walked up certain steps and said a prayer in a certain way, then you could free someone from purgatory. And if you paid a priest a certain amount of money, then you could free different souls. And just this crazy like church history has just been fascinating to me. And then when you you go home and you open up your Bible and you're just like, like, this is it. This is the word. And when you hear about those guys for the first time, when they spent their whole life just translating the Bible into English and they were burned alive for doing that, Mm -hmm. just for translating the Bible into English. They were literally burned alive. And so when you hear people say people died for this book to be in your hand, it's like, we just take it for granted, but it's like, we're about to read Mark 11. And there's stories about those guys the very first time they open up their Bible and they were able to read it in English on their own, not from a priest. Like it Mm. just gives you chills. It's like, this is the word of God. People died for this so that we could read this right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know. It's just, it's cool to see that church history and um, to see the mistakes of man and and how we got here. Yeah. It's made you see it in a different way. 
Yeah, it adds a layer of timelessness to it that the words that we're reading, like we'll read out of Mark 11 today, those, you think about the generations that have read Mark 11, they're reading the same words, and so you've got hundreds of years of people reading Mark 11, and different languages, different countries, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and it's the same word. It's a divinely inspired word of God, and it has similar significance. The meaning is is set there in that the original author, that God is working through that original human writer to a particular time, and there's a meaning to it, but yet it is still incredibly significant for us today. And yeah, you, then you think outside of the Bible, the people that, what they went through to ensure that we had it and that it's been preserved for us today. That is a neat, that's a neat perspective and it's a neat journey to be on. Uh, definitely encourage a lot of people to explore the history of the Bible that they hold in their hand. You referenced Martin Luther, uh, who was a German reformer uh, and was responding to some of the great heresies and, um, yeah, some of the, the waywardness of leadership in the Catholic Church at that time. Uh, there was a reformation within the Catholic Church uh, in response to that. The Jesuits became a order of priests that tried to initiate reforms, uh, you know, to try to amend some of those things as well. And then you had other reformers, John Calvin. Even before all of those guys, you have John Huss, who was, you know, like a hundred years before Luther, who was trying to battle some of the heresies that were going on. So you just, yeah, we, I think we do take for granted. I've said it before on this podcast and in other places that the Bible has never been more accessible. And yet it seems like it's the least understood it has ever been in history by the widespread, you know, Christian church that, that you can get hundreds of translations available in an instant on your phone and you can do greek word studies hebrew word studies you can they've they'll compile how this word is used over the course of its time in the bible and how it's used outside of the bible at the same time i mean there's no end to what you could research and learn about the text itself and yet it seems to be misunderstood or yeah people tend to be ignorant of the word of god and so that's one of the the goals of this podcast. How do we get it in front of more people? Uh, getting people to take and read this this thing that we call God's word and believe to be God's word. So that's good stuff. Thanks for sharing that journey. And uh, it's timely. It, the recording of this podcast, it is just a couple of days after Halloween, which is also October 31st marks the anniversary of, of when uh, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in Germany and sparked what he thought would just be an academic dialogue, ended up sparking an entire Reformation and movement, and then resulted in the Bible being translated into the German language right around the time of the printing press. And so uh, they... You can see there's a couple of places around the country uh, where you can see what's called the Gutenberg Bible. One of those is at the Beinecke Rare Book Library in New Haven, Connecticut, when I spent some time 
at Yale, uh, we could go and see the, the, the Gutenberg Bible on display, which was one of the first Bibles that was printed uh, in the German language and for the common people. Good stuff. Anything else you want to add to that? I don't think so. Okay. Well, we came here to take and read, my friend. We are in Mark 11, as has been referenced. We're making our way ever so carefully through the text. And uh, we've had some some interesting things come up in the last few episodes. We, we have kind of this long episode of a fig tree and the encounter that Jesus and his disciples have with a fig tree that was supposed to, it had the appearance of bearing fruit, even though it wasn't the season for bearing fruit or figs. And so even though it had that appearance, it was fruitless. And so there's a, a strong lesson to be learned there, because right in the middle of that that kind of experience, Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple by throwing tables and driving people out and and basically the temple had become a place of commerce, not a place of worship and prayer. And so he, there's definitely some relationship to the fruitless fig tree and the fruitless leadership in Jerusalem at the time and what they had done. So we pick up on that story and, uh, or at, after that story in verse 27. So we're in Mark 11. Verses 27, and we will read through 33 today. Uh, I'm reading out of the ESV. What do you got today? I have the ESV. I can okay. switch to the NIV if that would make it more interesting. Uh, you you do what you do what you got to do with that. I don't know. I'm I'm game right. for whatever. I'll stick with the ESV. Okay. And so we are uh, picking up in verse 27. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's such a, it's such an interesting dialogue, and you know, again, throughout the Gospel of Mark, one of the prominent themes is authority, and Jesus demonstrating the coming of the kingdom through him, the King, is a coming of authority, and that he has demonstrated and exercises authority very obviously. Like even in some of the times that you've been on this podcast, we've looked at him driving out demons and commanding demons to do certain things, uh, healed individuals, calmed storms. Like you think of all of the ways in which he acts in in the physical world or in the supernatural realm, and things obey him. They respond to his authority. 
And so it's interesting here that they recognize that he has some kind of authority. They just want to know its source. And we could understand that their motives aren't pure. So what if we have to summarize this scene and just so that we clearly understand what it says, what do you see happening here? And what are some things that maybe need some unpacking or explaining? Hmm. We understand so Jesus, the location. Go ahead. Jesus is, is in the temples, which is interesting to me that he goes into these temples and he is, he's teaching. He's usually teaching out of the old Testament um, and reading these older scrolls. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because people, I don't know. You just wouldn't, I feel like that could be easily misplaced or forgotten that Jesus was like in these temples that were made to worship God. And he yeah, was it was his, there. yeah, his common practice was to roll into town and hit up the synagogue, the local synagogue where a rabbi would be and would be teaching from the scrolls of the old Testament. And it would be common practice on, you know, uh, multiple times a week for people to gather and have someone read of the scrolls and then, teach on it. Like that was a common practice for rabbis here. He's no longer in these kind of, uh, outpost synagogues in these very small towns, but he's now in the temple. The, the only temple that exists for, for the Jews and it's in Jerusalem. So he's at the epicenter in the temple. I mean, understanding there's going to be different, uh, parts to it. It's almost like a campus. There's open areas, there's closed areas, there's courtyards, there's different places. And so there's parts that I think different people were allowed to go depending on kind of if you were male, female, your age, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, he's in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So this is all the top tier officials that are now coming to him because he's making it a regular practice. Cause it's not the first time he, he rolls into town the first day and he checks it out at night and it's kind of closed up for the night. And then, so then he leaves and they go to Bethany, they stay the night there. Then he wakes up the next morning. He, the fig tree that he had cursed the day before is now withered and, and dead. He goes back to the temple and kind of cleanses the temple and, and kind of has this, this big episode and and so now he's he's back in, again um, another time. So this kind of references maybe a third time he's now visited the temple in this week, the, what's called the Passion Week, in the week leading up to his crucifixion. So he's back here. This will be the third time he's now that we know of that he's back in the temple. And so he's made a, several visits. And the previous visit, he was throwing tables and getting pretty angry and in a righteous kind of way and dealing with some of the fallacies that were he was that were on display within the temple. So yeah, he's teaching from the scrolls or he's doing something that is causing them to question authority. And he's teaching with authority, which a lot of people mm -hmm. use to describe Jesus' teaching. What do you think that means that by what authority and who gave you this authority? It's like this, kind of like what we were talking about with the priests, where it's like there's a certain authority of a church of men that gives you permission to be able to 
uh, read the scripture and teach the scripture. And then there's an indication here that he's also doing it like in a way that uh, he knows what he's talking about in terms of his tone of voice and then maybe the message in and of itself. Yeah, I think um, there are times when he's healing people and they're going to ask by what authority. And then specifically mm-hmm. you referenced uh, the times that he taught, they recognize he teaches as one with authority, not like the scribes. So there was this sense in which when he was teaching, he was the originator of the lessons and the the truths and the principles being taught, whereas scribes were simply passing along things that they had learned from either his like other rabbis or from history or from teachings that had been passed down. And yet Jesus's teaching was like it was coming directly from him that he didn't receive it from a previous rabbi or something like that. And and part of that authority, I think historically in that, in the culture of rabbis and priests and scribes, that you, you were recognized by whoever you trained under. And so, like you can find in Scripture, there's a reference to a certain rabbi named Gamaliel who apparently was Paul's mentor and rabbi. So Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. He had studied under or had been a learner under that particular rabbi. And Gamaliel had a reputation. And so there was a sense in which when, you know, in that tradition, if you were under a certain rabbi, had trained under a certain rabbi, then when you went out to teach, you were, by the authority of that rabbi, you had been endorsed as legitimate and been given authority to carry on the teaching of that particular rabbi. So it was kind of this, I think in our day and age, we would liken it to if you have a degree from a certain university, then you have a particular uh, legitimacy or reputation that follows you. Like somebody who's attended an Ivy League school in certain settings, it's like, oh, oh, you you came from an Ivy League school, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, whatever, and it's like, okay, that that's a certain level of authority or influence or notoriety to where, okay, you you have a little bit more weight in the matter just because it, those institutions have a certain reputation. If you're coming from some you know, unknown state school or junior college and somebody else is coming from the Ivy League, there's going to be a, in the in the public eye, there may be a certain view you have of those people. You know, for you, you went to the school. You graduated from the place. Do you want to mention that here on this podcast or would that raise ire of some people? I don't know. Uh, what, Texas A&M? Oh, there it is. Look yeah. at just it flows off the tongue like poetry. Yeah. Um, my wife was also an Aggie. She went to Texas A&M, so I kind of married into that whole business. But so I think the the idea there is there's that reputation. So that might be the qu- part of the question they're asking. Like who who gave you like where? What's your pedigree? Yeah. What's your who do you get the authority from to teach and do this kind of stuff? Where are you from? Who'd you study under? Whose whose endorsement do you have to go about doing this? And so that may be part of it. They're 
They're checking his credentials. I don't know if they're necessarily interested in the source. They just want to know kind of where did you come from? So now he answers their question with a question. I will ask you one question and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So what does it mean, the baptism of John? Yeah, so we recall earlier in this gospel, the moment when Jesus is baptized, he gets baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And so John had come and had been one, a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And he was teaching, John the Baptist was teaching about his baptism, that it was a baptism of repentance, but that one was coming that would have a different baptism. And so there was, there was kind of this known component that he was called John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And so it's referring to the baptism that John was performing and so Jesus is asking, is that that baptism that John performed, was that from him? Did he just invent this, or was that from God? And so it kind of puts them, it's such an interesting, like of all the things he could have asked them to try to test them, he asks them a very specific thing. So he's in control at this point, right? He's the one that's, that's driving the car in this conversation with them. And so he he chooses very specifically, knowing that it would cause this issue for them, and and we realize what the issue is because that's what's in the text, right? What's the what's the conundrum? What's the dilemma they have with this question in particular? And so their response now is they're debating on what they're going to say, not on not based on what truth is but they're debating their answer based off of what is going to happen to them. Yeah. It's what a, people are going to think about it, which self-preservation. Kind of yep. They're trying to remain, maintain status quo of their own authority. So it's interesting that this whole thing is about authority. They're trying to retain authority by asking him about his authority. He asks them a question about John the Baptist. Where did this, was it a baptism from God or man, which is a question of authority. If he's baptizing and it's a baptism from God, well, then he had the authority of God in that baptism. If it's an authority of men, so it's interesting. There, it's, it's 100% about authority in this regard. So he asks them about this baptism of John. Their conundrum is, well, the people think John's authority, that was a, John was a prophet, meaning he came under the he was from God, sent by God, speaking on God's behalf, so he had God's authority. So the popular opinion is that John's baptism is from God because he was a prophet, therefore he had God's authority. If we say that he didn't, then what's their problem? If we say from heaven then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you, um, why did you not believe him? So then they're going to be look like the guys that don't believe and understand when God is working and speaking and doing. So they know they can't say that, even though that's the popular opinion. It doesn't say that that's what they actually believe. 
but they're completely politicizing this entire thing, right? They're, they're, this is a political issue for them because they have the, they, they want to try to retain some semblance of authority in the lives of the populace. Just so interesting. Yeah. And what we, what we see is, um, Podcaster, it was gonna happen once. So, was that just a run of the mill, yee faithful employee? I'm, I'm more surprised that it doesn't happen more often, actually, without me putting a note on my door with the amount of times that people are in and out of my office. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, so he just totally puts them in a bind. And what's almost just sad about the whole thing is they just they have no answer. They just say, we don't know. Um, so they, they just pick neither side. Well, and they're afraid. Like, they're completely afraid. The fear rules their hearts because they're afraid of losing what they have. They're afraid of this um, this plastic power that they have. This kind of fake, uh, flimsy uh, facade of authority and power that they have. And so they know they, they don't want to do anything to disrupt that or jeopardize it. So they, they can't answer. They're like, we don't know. And he tells them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's like, all right, we try to play the game. You won't play by the rules. So I'm not going to give up. Uh, you know, my, you know, my authority source or by what authority or, you know, what endorsement I have, to do these things and to teach these things. So it's very what's, interesting. What's interesting is how he kind of plays that out. Because if you're Jesus, you know, you're Jesus. You could just tell them by the authority of the creator, the alpha omega, the beginning, the end. I, I can just tell you who I am and whose authority I'm getting this from. But he kind of does this to, to draw out their hearts and make them mm. think. And, and a lot of times he'll do this and then he'll make people restate things so that they could say it out loud and, and like condemning themselves out loud of like, no, yeah. like, let me, let me hear what you really think about this. Like, say that again. He does that to, uh, I think he does that to, uh, the rich young ruler where he, he kind of repeats things and like, and almost like a, a way of being sarcastic, sarcastic to, right. um, you know what I mean? And we can't really, like, you wonder why he's doing it that way. I think that's one of the questions I have. We don't have any indication that there was a crowd around him at this point. It just says that they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, uh, he was approached by, you know, this group of priests, chief priests, scribes, elders, uh, asking by what authority. Then there's this, uh, as they're discussing with one another, they're understanding that it says, we sh- what shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So th- there must have been people there that are witnessing this interaction. And so he's got this crowd. So you, you wonder, is he doing this for the sake of the priests and the elders and the scribes? And or is he doing it for the people that are gathered there so that ultimately it's showing that 
these people don't know everything or maybe I don't know what he's trying to show about this leadership, this false leadership that the priests and the scribes and the uh, elders have. But yeah, I wonder why, why is he doing this? He's, because the whole thing drips with the conversation and the topic of authority. They're asking about his authority. He kind of challenges them if they are willing to admit what authority John the Baptist baptized people with. And then he's like, I'm not going to tell you about my authority. And all it does is display that they lack authority. It just shows that they don't have it. Whatever they're asking about, they're insufficient in it. Yeah, he's almost, yeah, he's not saying, he's not outright saying the exact authority that he got it from because he doesn't have to. And that's not like his purpose of this conversation. Like you Mm -hmm. said, it's more of a situation of getting them to search their hearts and then to admit that they don't know and then to show the people around them that these guys don't know and they are not the authority. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. And there's, there's a, to this, what we're seeing is a timing component that everything about what Jesus does and where he goes and what he says has to do with the timing for his crucifixion and resurrection to arrive at a particular time. We've referenced on this podcast before the messianic secret that there's this element where sometimes he's healing people and he's he's demonstrating this authority and he's telling them not to go and tell other people what's happened. And But as he draws closer and closer to Jerusalem, he starts to get more and more bold in terms of uh, showing the ineptitude of the the Jewish leadership, the scribes, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the the priests, he continues to kind of articulate, whether it's through parables or other things, other demonstrations, that they they are the problem, that they don't get it, and that yeah, there there are some accusations and indictments that he is making about them. And he gets more and more bold as he gets closer to the cross. And so he's got a particular way in which this is going to unfold. And it's so that it arrives at the right time. And so there's this, this scene plays a part in that, right? There's a, he is revealing their lack of understanding in the way that he asks a question and they, they're unwilling to answer it. And so it's, he's stirring the pot intentionally because they didn't get the answer they wanted. They probably looked ridiculous in front of the people because they didn't have a good answer. And so this is just going to fuel the fire of their hatred all the more. And that's all intentional on his part. He doesn't do anything on accident. And what I think is cool about this and the conversation we just had, and then just this podcast in general, is the more I kind of grow in my Christian faith, you can see, and you've been doing this for a number of years, you can see when people take verses out of context and then they just apply them to their life out of context without seeing the whole scope of the Bible and what it says and what, who it was written by and what was going on in that moment in history. And then how that then relates to the grand scheme of things. Whereas you listen to pastors now that are very emotional and exciting 
and they, they want every single verse to relate and to be a metaphor for exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so like a pastor that I've been listening to just to like genuinely be like, just to just research and see this person is getting a lot of traction. What are they doing? Um, she would look at this and say, uh, you know, okay, who, who are the, who are the scribes and priests in your life that are questioning your authority? Yeah. And then what authority are you teaching by? And then how, and then how can we then answer in a way that Jesus answered here? And, you know, and it takes every single thing and then takes it and says, what's that? And what's the, what's the ship in your life that you've been shipwrecked? And how does COVID relate to this and that? Um, so I forgot the exact term that it's called. It's like exegesis or something. Yeah, there's you... exegesis versus eisegesis. And okay. exegesis is a way in which you draw out what does this text mean. So I'm exiting out of the text the meaning that is there in the original writing to the original audience and in the original time. So I want to I want to understand what does this mean in in the moment that it's happening and in the moment that it's written. Eisegesis is when we insert meaning into a text and it's not there. So we take a text and we we take from our experience, our desire, our our particular bent and we insert meaning into a text where that's it's not there. And mm-hmm. that's that's where heresy and that becomes very heretical. And that's a dangerous thing. And so one of the worst questions that I think can be asked in a Bible study is, what does this mean to you? Uh, that's a dangerous road to go down because we are fickle, we are temporal, we are extremely limited in our understanding, and we're, we're highly emotive, which I don't think emotions are a bad thing, but they're not a great mechanism by which you interpret or understand the Word of God. So we will we'll bring all of this into the and and when somebody says what does this mean to you all of a sudden the word of God becomes this uh, little uh, it's a tool that's used to kind of help you feel a certain way or it's kind of this this precious moments tagline that kind of just inspires you and that's a dangerous road to go on we have to do the hard work of, like what we try to do here is wrestle with what is the, where does this text fit into the whole context of everything that's happening around it then and there? We have to do the hard work of, of getting through our cultural assumptions, our historical assumptions, our worldview of very Western mindset, and try to get back to what did this stuff mean then? And it's hard. It's hard work. And, and so, yeah, we're always looking for two things. Understand what does this text mean in its original occurrence by the author and the audience that are present? What are they experiencing and learning and understanding? And then we ask the question of significance for us. So here, okay, in this moment, you probably have the disciples are with him. There's a crowd of people that are with him, and he's got these elders, priests, and scribes. They've asked him a pointed question because they want they have some sort of agenda. They're trying to get him to, you know, reveal something that they can maybe have on him or whatever. Maybe something they could use to accuse him with later, or 
that he would condemn himself and then they could, you know, shut down his ministry or whatever. He challenges them in the area of authority, which is exactly what they've brought up. He shows them to lack authority and understanding, even though that's exactly what they're trying to preserve with this line of questioning. And everyone's witnessed this. The disciples and the people gathered have seen him and he's seen them. And he's seen, he's been seen to continue to maintain his authority because he, he drove and steered that entire conversation. They came up not knowing anything and he still has the upper hand. So that's been on display. And so what are the people gathered there? How are they processing this? They're watching this Jesus come into town. Yesterday, he was throwing tables all over the temple, and no one shut that down. Now he's in here, and the, and the, the head honchos are trying to engage with him and figure out things, and they're, they walk away looking like they don't know what's going on. Who's this guy? Who is he? And the disciples are like, they're maybe excited because he's like totally schooling the, the elites, or they're nervous because he's totally schooling the elites and they're like, great, this is not going to end well. Yeah. So we've got to wrestle with some of those questions. How are they experiencing this? What does this mean in this moment? And then we can ask the question, how is that significant for us today? Yeah. So what do you, if, if you were to kind of wrestle with everything that we've talked about here, what is the meaning of this text, why does Mark put it there? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, why do we have this episode to draw on in the Word of God? Yeah, I see. I see Jesus walking this earth uh, in flesh, walking through temples, teaching in temples, and speaking with authority in these temples, indicating mm-hmm. that He has an authority of someone who knows what he's talking about, who has some kind of um, divinity about him, who has um, credibility, and who, when questioned, you know, just based off of all of Mark, you know, you can see that whole story kind of play and lead up to this moment. If you were just reading these verses right here, it may be a little bit different, but kind of speaking, knowing that, okay, we have like, this context about what Jesus has been doing in terms of his healing and leading up to this moment. Okay. We, he has authority the way that he just like in a temperate measured way answers these men, uh, and, uh, really cleverly makes them expose themselves as an, as those who, um, are maybe trying to appear like, great worshipers of God, but Mm -hmm. in reality are really self-seeking, self-preserving, fearing man, uh, selfish guys. And, um, and then in the end, he, they they reveal that they they don't have the authority in in front Mm -hmm. of everybody. So there's this questioning of authority that we've already established. And, um, and Jesus seems to have this authority that he's not even revealing to them yet because it seems that, okay, this guy, for whatever reason, he's just so in control that he's not mm-hmm. even, it's not like he's desperately like, 
please believe me. You know, he, he speaks, he, he just, he's so cool in his, in his delivery and his cleverness. (laughs) And he's just completely in control. Um, and then, so in, in terms of significance for us today, I mean, that's what I take from this is, you know, um, from this text and then looking at the broader picture, knowing that Jesus is the eternal son of God from there, there from the beginning, you're like, Oh, this totally makes sense. We know who Jesus is. He's there from the beginning. He's the beginning. He's the first and the last. He's, uh, you know, the second member of the Trinity. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and he yeah. came and he, he, he questioned this authority. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the very beginning of this gospel. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the only time that Mark gives us his opinion or his conclusion. And what the rest of the gospel ends up being is a a defense and a case for that very statement. That this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then everything that follows is a support for that conclusion, that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, therefore he has authority. Because just a few verses later, in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. So this this is the collected teachings of Peter written by Mark, and it is meant to give a clear and accurate teaching on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One. And so this passage is, is a big part of supporting that, that he is the authority that he has is because he's the son of God, that he is God incarnate. Therefore, that's the authority by which he does this. He needs no human pedigree. He needs no human rabbi to ascribe himself to, to say, I learned this from somewhere else because he is the source. That's by what authority he does this because he is the authority. And that's just something that is the authority. Jewish authorities with plastic power are the ones that aren't willing to admit that. And because they won't admit it, their pla- their power will remain plastic in nature. It'll be false and flimsy and artificial at best. So I think this, the significance for us is to recognize that, that although there are, are things that we will ascribe authority to, or feel like they have authority or power or sway in our life. Everything else is a plastic, artificial, flimsy power and authority compared to Christ, that he is the ultimate authority. His word is authoritative. His spirit is present with us, and when he leads us by his spirit, that's the authority we should submit to, not any other governing authorities, that he is the ultimate the ultimate authority in our life. So what he says goes. Our flesh isn't the authority. 
Satan certainly isn't the authority, and the world system is not the authority. Culture is not the authority. God's word is the authority because it it is from him. He is the Christ. Amen. I just dropped a mic, although I don't want to drop this mic. It's kind of expensive. And powerful men are not the authority. As influential and well-spoken and wealthy as they are. Yeah. Just because someone has a lot of money doesn't make them authoritative. Just because they're good with words doesn't make them authoritative. Just because they have like a billion likes or subscribers doesn't make them authoritative. Jesus is the authority. End of the day. Uh, so good stuff, good stuff. And and now the challenge for us is to live in light of that truth. We don't come to the Word just because we like to have a good, stimulating conversation. We come because we want to understand what God says, and we believe in this Word is life, and there's life in no one else but Jesus. And so we live in light of the fact that He is authoritative. So there's things that you, Parker, and me, we have to submit to that authority in all areas of our life and give that over to him. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you if you're tuning into this podcast, this is probably the moment where most people shut it off. But uh, if you're still listening, uh, so glad you're with us. If you have questions or want to make comments, please leave comments wherever you can. Um, as they say, hit the like button, subscribe, do all the stuff you, you're supposed to do in social media because it helps others find us. Um, we want to be an encouragement, and I want to see more and more people reading the Word of God. If you're listening and you know, you've know you heard two men that believe this to be 100% the Word of God and authoritative in our life, and you're not sure you're there with that, then I encourage you to continue to read it and wrestle with it and ask for God to give you illumination and clarity in what you read. Uh, If you want to talk with me or Parker about committing your life to the Lord, we'd love to help you um, with that and walk you through that decision. So I encourage you, if you have questions, please take and read podcast at gmail.com. You can pass along questions to Parker through that email address. You can find Parker on all social media stuff everywhere. Yee, he's the guy. And so uh, if you don't have a yee hat, you should probably go buy one because they're really cool and comfy and always trendy, although they're not authoritative. They're just cool. Uh, any parting words you have, Parker? No, that's awesome. Thanks for okay. having me. Good luck in the snow. Yeah, in yeah it's, it's snow season. Excited for that. But uh, I want to encourage everybody to go take and read the word of God. Have a good one.